0: Uh, let me do my best to cheer up, Kevin. Um, so, so the question I was asked to address was uh, what will it take to avoid uh, x degrees of warming, um, Two, three, four, whatever number you wish. Um, and uh, it actually follows very naturally from Jason's. A lot of what I'll be talking about is actually conceptually quite similar to what Jason was uh, talking about, but hopefully we'll be able to reinforce some of his messages. Um, and, of course, I've got to thank um, uh, various co-authors on this. Um, several of the plots I'm showing you, the, the new ones, at least, were produced by Neil Bauman, who's just recently joined our group. Um, but just for the people here who don't, for whom this isn't sort of their... their their routine daily uh, uh, activity. I don't know if any of those those people left. Um, But um, the usual answer, uh, it tends to be only the enthusiast. Nobody nobody cares about mitigation. Everybody just wants to know the scare stories, don't they? Okay. So the usual uh, answer you get is you've got to aim to stabilize atmospheric concentrations at some PPM. um, And you've got to do this by reducing emissions by Z percent relative to 1990 by some date, okay. So the honest answer is we don't know and we won't know for sure until we try. And this is actually the point at which I could finish my talk. And I think it's a message, it's a message we do have to make sure gets conveyed very loudly um, to, to people meeting, for example, in Copenhagen in December. The only way you're going to find out what it's going to take to avoid any given level of warming is by reducing emissions and finding out how the system responds. We can model till the cows come home, and we certainly will, but um, it's, it's not, you know, you're not going to know until we actually start this next experiment. That said, before they fire us all, (coughs) um, we may still be able to say something useful, provided we ask the right questions. And the importance of asking the right question is is illustrated. I mean, I I will sort of talk about the wrong question briefly. Um, The standard approach, which most 95% of the people meeting in Copenhagen will think is the question they're trying to answer, is... X degrees means Y ppm, and that requires Z percent by 2020 or 2050. That's the way everybody thinks about this problem. And it's the wrong question. So this is why it's the wrong question. This question originates, of course, from the ultimate objective of the UNFCCCC, which poses the implicit question, what is that level in the atmosphere that would avoid dangerous climate change? So to answer the UNFCC's question, you need to know the climate sensitivity. And as you all know, the Charney report in 79 came up with a sensitivity range of 1.5 to 4.5. And 2007, do the math how many years later, um, basically the, change hasn't, the range hasn't fallen. Um, by the way, if the climate sensitivity is 3 degrees, then a 2 degree limit implies we can go to 445 ppm Um, One of the sort of hot debates for Copenhagen is should we aim for 3.50 ppm which is now a global campaign to get people behind recently endorsed by Nick Stern, um, uh, that we should all aim for 3.50 ppm. What does this mean and why? Why are people aiming for this? Well the worry here is again because you're asking the wrong question you find yourself tying yourself in knots to answer it in a way that makes sense. So the argument, which is generally handed out for why we should aim for 350 ppm, um, is illustrated by this diagram here, which shows um, the carbon dioxide concentration associated with different levels of equilibrium warming. First of all, if you assume a standard three degree sort of climate sensitivity. And then people cite, "Ah, oh, but Hansen 2009 have shown paleoclimatic evidence, which implies that way back in the Uh, In the distant past, temperatures were around six degrees higher when um, carbon dioxide levels were five, that's after ice caps have melted and so on. So, um, uh, you know, uh, even Mark Linus can join those lines up and say, oh, well, the climate sensitivity must be six degrees. As you know, Mark's a very intelligent person. He told me so yesterday lunchtime. Um, (laughs) And uh, uh, so, and say, well, here you are. I follow this line. This is just a log curve, by the way. I'm sure Mark's good at logs. And, uh, uh, and there you are, look, 352 degrees, okay? Hey, presto, that's why we need to aim for two degrees, because, because Jim Hansen has shown this paleoclimate evidence that climate sensitivity is really six degrees. That's the wrong answer, because, of course, what actually happens is the system follows this curve, then eventually your ice caps collapse, and it wobbles up there, and then, of course, if you try and cool it down again without any ice caps, you end up higher than what you were to start with. Okay, so the danger with this sort of argument is if you're saying, well, the IPCC thought the climate sensitivity was 3 degrees, but they got it wrong. Jim Hansen's shown it's 6 degrees, so we need to stabilise at 350 QED. Um, The problem, there's lots of problems with this. First of all, uh, to get an IPCC-like consensus that the climate sensitivity is 6 degrees will, I assure you, take a long time. And Jim Hansen will say, well, that's because the IPCC is populated by dinosaurs like myself, who take a lot of convincing. But I don't think I'm the only dinosaur on this one. I think I, I've got some um, a- allies on, the, on, on that front. Melting ice sheets, of course, for this six-degree sensitivity to manifest itself may take even longer. And so your targets basically apply to some indefinite date in the future. In the future. And also, there's a fun, fundamental logical problem here. If the aim is to save the ice sheets, then why use a climate sensitivity value, which assumes the ice sheets melt? You don't have to be Bjorn Lomborg. I don't think he spotted this one yet, but he probably will. And uh, OK, none of this argument is necessary. OK, the emission policies you need to avoid more than two degrees of warming are the same, regardless of the very long-term concentration you aim for. The problem with this whole argument is you're asking the wrong question to start with. Asking what is the very long-term carbon dioxide concentration humanity should be aiming for is not a helpful question because we can't answer it using existing science. We can't answer it using any conceivable scientific investigation we could perform today. Here's a better question and a different story. Okay, so this is a study published uh, earlier this year which Jason was a co-author on. and It's actually very similar to the kind of our study Jason was telling you about they're doing under the Avoid Programme. Um, generating lots of idealized CO2 scenarios um, and looking uh, at the, uh, how the temperature responds using a simple climate model. So the aim, with, with sort of the, the crucial point about this, is the assumption is we're aiming to stabilise temperatures, not concentrations. So having achieved a rate of emission decline, we just assume um, our descendants carry on making emissions decline at that rate until temperatures peak. Okay, this means they don't have to go to zero, but they do have to go pretty damn close to zero. So this, of course, will give us a great um, argument for the panel discussion on um, the, the uh, it, whether or not there really is an emissions floor, and we'll come back to that later on in the talk. But I, I'm not assuming uh, I'm I'm one of Jason's cases where the emissions is assumed to be zero. So I'm not I'm not uh, uh, looking at the um, uh, response to uh, an emissions floor in say 2300. So here's lots of scenarios. okay, And um, the crucial property of all these scenarios is that they, the red and orange ones, for example, all represent cumulative emissions close to a trillion tons of carbon. And if we look at the response to them, here we are. Um, there's emissions on the left and the temperature response on the right. And you can see that um, you know, if you're prepared to cut at 8% per year, this is just re- reinforcing Jason's point, you can postpone the time of the emissions peak. Um, to the 2020s, but you've then got to come up with a convincing story as to how you're going to cut by 8% per year um, all the way through to 2100. You're going to keep that 8% per year reduction going um, uh, in order to keep your integral, the integral under these curves, the total amount of carbon you release into the atmosphere is the same. So that blue area is the same as that blue area. This, these tons of carbon are borrowed from our descendants uh, then, if you like. But the crucial point is the climate system doesn't really care very much. Um, it, there is a small difference in 2100, in twenty um, sort of late 21st uh, century temperatures. The actual peak rate of temperature change, which you might think was a sort of key determinant of ecosystem damage, actually isn't very different between these three curves. What's different is that in the high case, this peak rate of temperature change is sustained a little bit longer before it levels off. OK, so, you know, and also notice the uncertainty in the response is much larger than the difference between these curves. It really doesn't matter when we release this carbon. What matters is how much we release. And lots of people have been saying this. Kevin and Alice Bose said this last year. Susan Solomon said it. We've said it. It's kind of an obvious thing to say. Um, and uh, uh, but it, it does have important implications because it's not what they're talking about at the moment for Copenhagen. Um, here's the, here's the, the problem, um, if you're just looking at emissions in 2020, and I'm just plotting 2020 emissions here against cumulative emissions, similar to some of Jason's plots. We didn't coordinate these talks, as you can probably tell, but, um, but, uh, but you can see that the colors show the most likely peak warming, and the colors run horizontal, okay? So it doesn't matter, I should say Neil produced this plot, not me, but, um, but the point is it doesn't matter. Um, if you fix the cumulative total, that fixes your Um, uh, temperature, your peak temperature, it doesn't matter how much of that you're emitting before or after 2020. Interestingly, for this sort of class of of, of continuous emission profiles, 2050 emissions happen to be quite a good indicator of the risk of cumulative emissions going over a trillion tons. Okay, and that's a very simple, there's a very simple reason for that. Again, it's just geometry. Okay, these lines tend to cross over around then. Okay? So how much you're emitting in 2050 is actually, for this overall shape of scenario, a good predictor of what you're going to emit in total. Okay? That's instantaneous 2050 emissions. Okay? So um, that's actually why coincidentally. If you're really aiming for two degrees, 2050 emissions is probably quite a sensible thing to focus on, but you've got to acknowledge that it's not fundamentally what the climate system is responding to. It's only interesting because it happens to be well correlated in this class of emission scenario with what really matters, which is the total. There's a lot of enthusiasm for, and this is Malta Meinshausen's fault, for emissions between now and 2050. And in fact, Jason made the same mistake in his talk, proving therefore that we haven't coordinated enough, um, or that I haven't been talking to Jason enough. Um, He's still using the budget to 2050 as a guide. This is less good even than 2050 emissions themselves, okay? Because again, go back to this graph, the amount I emit between now and 2050 is actually less relevant to the total because of course it's all about how much you borrow from before and after 2050 Then 2050 emissions are themselves. So it's a rather counterintuitive result. The actual rate of emission in 2050 is actually better than the budget to 2050 as a guide to your overall cumulative total. This is important because the WBGU proposal and indeed everybody else and everybody at DEC thinks it's the budget to 2050 that matters. And I told Malta this many times but he refused to change it. uh, so, here you are. Remember this diagram. Next time somebody's talking to you about the budget to 2050, ask them, what do you plan to do afterwards? Because that's what matters, okay? It's the budget overall. Mother Nature doesn't care about dates at all, not even long dates. Okay, here we are. There's the peak warming um, summary from our study um, as, a function of, um, uh, as a function of cumulative emissions, and this is where we sort of start to get more relevant to the overall topic of this meeting because we're looking at to higher cumulative emissions um, and uh, higher temperature changes. So um, notice this the overall uh, how this how this uh, overall um, sort of area of possible response um, evolves. And um, i was just going to point out there's a very nice link between this result and various other studies. This is showing you that same information just as some little error bars here instead. Um, that's the UK Climate Change Committee's recommended budget for a 50% chance of beating two degrees. Uh, that's Malta's number. That's Malta's uncertainty range. So Malta actually proposed a, a limit down here so as to get a 75% chance of beating two degrees. Um, this, by the way, sorry, it's rather faint. This, is, this range is the um, confidence interval on peak warming proposed by Matthews et al in a paper which came out shortly after uh, ours. As you can see, they're somewhat more optimistic than we are because they're using different assumptions about the amount of CO2 uh, or different different uh, estimates of the amount of CO2-induced warming to date. OK, so that um, just shows that everybody's kind of seen from the same hymn sheet. We're all getting roughly the same numbers. And um, this is how it evolves into the future. This, of course, is the point where I have to stress I kind of set this up and did this study focusing on low, using a model that was intended for low emission scenarios. As soon as, because of the title of this conference, I'm now going to show you some figures about how it evolves when you go further into the future, but I'm very uncomfortable with using simple models when you go out to more extreme uh, 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 rates uh, magnitudes of warming, because you, you just know that the relevance of the model to the real world is just going to start to break down at that point. So just... For your eyes only, so to speak, um, um, here's what happens if you add 2 trillion tons. We bump up peak warming to around, th- most likely peak warming to around 3 degrees, and 3 trillion tons bumps it up to 4 degrees. Interestingly, it's not going up entirely linearly, and there's various interesting reasons for that. Notice that this, 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 this curves here. Um, and in fact, um, one of the reasons is very simple, the logarithmic dependence of um, CO2 Uh, forcing on uh, of forcing on CO2. In fact, Neil Bowman reckons that explains most of this curvature in fact, It's just a sort of simple and that of course we can rely on because we know that um, CO2 is a logarithmic driver. On the other hand when you're going up here and there's lots of other things kicking in like methane Feedbacks and so forth then the um, predictions of simple models like this one uh, are less and less relevant to the real world Let's just see how it all relates to what's down there. That's past emissions That's conventional oil and gas. Um, They found some more recently, so maybe that bar's wrong. Um, That's uh, conventional oil, gas, and coal. And that's including unconventional reserves. So there's plenty of fossil fuels down there. Which brings us to why this is not just an academic point. I quote a senior member of the um, civil service in the Department of Energy and Environment Change who said this is completely uninteresting. Uh, It's just an academic point. I really resent the fact that he uses academic as a derogatory. Um, (laughs) uh, um, So CO2 matters because CO2 (laughs) accumulates most other Gases don't. Therefore, if you're going to trade off different gases, you potentially are going to do things which are counterproductive if you end up emitting more CO2 and reducing emissions of a short-lived gas. That matters, because I'll bet we'll do lots of that sort of thing. We need to limit cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide if we want to avoid dangerous climate change. This seems an incredibly simple statement that it would be good if the world's politicians understood that. I don't think it's just an academic point that they should understand that. (laughs) Postponing emissions peak. To, this is more controversial, and, and uh, but it's true, so um, you have to accept it. Um, postponing the emissions peak to 2020 does not actually physically commit us to two degrees. It commits us to potentially unfeasible rates of emission reductions after 2020 if we're to achieve two degrees. These two statements are not the same. And if we reach 2020, and emissions are still gently rising. I would much rather have been saying that second thing for 10 years than the first thing. And you've got to see why. Because if you've said you're doomed if you don't peak by x date, then if we don't peak by x date, what can you say apart from, oh, well, we're doomed, which is not a helpful thing to say. So we've got to be very careful here. And a lot of the focus, deck in particular, the, 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 a lot of the rhetoric on the need to peak by x date is potentially extremely dangerous because it doesn't fit with the science. Saying anything which isn't totally supported by science is always dangerous. But it's also sort of uh, is a hostage to fortune as to what you're going to say later. And crucially, of course, this case for limited cumulative CO2 emissions to less than a trillion tons doesn't depend on any post-AR4 science. It doesn't depend on, you know, Stefan's new model for sea level rise, um, and it it, it doesn't depend on Jim Hansen's latest estimate of climate sensitivity. This is absolutely bog-standard climate science. There's, of course, a very important implication, which I wanted to to flag up because John Schellenhuber mentioned this. If we know there's a limit on cumulative CO2 emissions, we're not quite sure what the limit is, but we're not too far away, um, there's a very good chance we're going to miss it. So it's very hard to avoid the implication that we need to be building a capacity for negative emissions. And this is just an interesting um, uh, graph that Neil Baumann produced uh, in in his master's uh, thesis. We have very good students here in Oxford. They do good master's projects. And uh, this shows you how emissions might have to evolve if you assume, as you learn as you go along, so to speak, about what it's going to take um, to avoid two degrees of warming. So here, Neil didn't do very well. He wasn't that good a master's student, because he didn't quite avoid two degrees of warming. But he did pretty well. (laughs) He did, he did better than... Actually, there's another graph which does even better. But, um, uh, but, but he did a lot better than, than, than uh, the politicians in Copenhagen are likely to do anyway. Um, and uh, as you can see here, crucially, there's a very large grey area down below zero there. There's a good chance as we adjust emissions through the century to avoid two degrees of warming, we're going to discover too late that emissions are going to have to go negative. So we need to build the capacity for that to be possible. Okay, so here we are. Um, uh, some of the – this matters because there's no point in arguing over sustainable per capita emission rates. It's like sharing out the last tuna. Okay? Um, measures to reduce 2020 emissions will only help if they're part of a package to limit cumulative CO2 emissions. Okay? So an exclusive focus on 2020, which appears to be DEC's focus, or at least it was the last time anybody spoke to me. Um, they didn't talk to me anymore. Maybe that's why, um, because uh, uh, only uh, uh, is, is potentially counterproductive. For example, carbon sequestration doesn't really make sense if all you care about is 2020 emissions, because it's a very expensive and rather slow way of reducing emissions by 2020. However, if you're thinking about the cumulative total, carbon sequestration is essentially what it's all about. So it does make a big difference. We would like, therefore, the parties to the UNFCCC to acknowledge the needs to limit cumulative emissions. We're not saying that they need to specify a number. It would be far too soon for them to do that now. But it would be a very good thing, indeed, if they could simply accept the principle that cumulative emissions will have to be lit. carbon dioxide emissions will eventually have to cease. And they will have to cease before we exceed a given total if we're going to avoid dangerous climate change. Because, remember, we didn't save the ozone layer by rationing deodorant. Think about it.